Well, good morning. morning. And happy Easter. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter. You can find this short letter toward the back of your Bibles or, for easy reference, page 1014 uh, in the Burgundy Pew Bibles there in front of you. This morning, we're beginning a series through 1 Peter that will continue through the end of June Skipping, of course, Sundays like Rogation Sunday, formerly known as Mother's Day, and moving on through Pentecost and Trinity Sunday, uh, we'll glide over and we'll not touch First Peter then, but until now, apart from those Sundays, until now, to the end of June, we will be looking at First Peter. The lectionary indeed invites us to do that during Eastertide, and we want to do all of it, so we're going to look at it all. At the heart of this letter is Peter's concern that churches and individual Christians stand firm in the true grace of God. We hear this concern in the way that Peter begins and ends his letter. Listen to his summary of the letter in chapter 5, verse 12. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. There are two aspects here that echo the introduction. One is the true grace of God, and two is Peter's exhortation to stand firm in it. Now listen to the way he begins the letter in verses 1 and 2 with these two aspects in mind. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, that is chosen, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, that's modern-day Turkey, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter's conclusion concerning the true grace of God echoes his identification of Christians as those who are elect, chosen, whom God has chosen according to his foreknowledge. And this doesn't mean that God looked from the distant past at our lives and said, well, they look pretty good. Look, they're pretty faithful. I'll choose them. No, this means that God from the very beginning had divine initiative to do everything possible to bring us into his family. He's the one who engaged in his own initiative to choose us long before we had done anything that deserved it. Indeed, we can't deserve it. So let's pick back up. Peter's conclusion about the true grace of God echoes his identification of Christians as those who are chosen by God, by the foreknowledge of God, those whom the Spirit has sanctified, that is, set apart for God's purposes in this world, and in particular, the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ, obeying Jesus Christ. And then also, these are those who have been sprinkled by Jesus' cleansing blood. For Peter, this is the true grace of God in a nutshell. And he'll unpack this throughout the letter. And this true grace of God has consequences, though, in this fallen world for the lives of those who have received it through faith. They become what Peter identifies there as exiles, foreigners in the fallen human cultures that they once called home. Because of God's grace that transforms their lives through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the cleansing work of the blood of Christ, and because they're now practicing a total way of life, that's what a culture is, a total way of life in obedience to Jesus the risen King, because of God's true grace, they are no longer walking in step 
with the priorities, values, and allegiances of the fallen human cultures of this world. The principles that guide their choices and practices in life have radically changed because of the grace of God. They can no longer participate in the household worship of false pagan deities with their family members. They can no longer offer a sacrifice, a little pinch of incense, or bow to a patron deity of their profession, or trade, or craft. They can no longer offer worshipful homage to the Roman emperor. They, because of the grace of God and having received the grace of God, they have become foreigners in their own families, in their jobs, and in their civic and political lives. Why is this? Because their core identity, their basic identity is no longer tied to the fallen human cultures of this world. They're no longer a part of this old world that is passing away, though we are still firmly rooted in it. They have been transferred from one kingdom and culture to that of another, separate and distinct kingdom and culture. They have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, as Paul says in Colossians, to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. This is an Easter reality for us. They are now a part of God's missional and redemptive project of bringing his heavenly kingdom and the culture of that kingdom on earth. This is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for heaven to inhabit all of earth. We're tasked with living out the heavenly kingdom now and its culture, a culture that at its core is motivated by obedience to Jesus above all else. Obedience to Jesus as the risen and triumphant King. And as a result of experiencing this transforming work of God's true grace, these Christians were seen as outsiders, as foreigners, in their own families and jobs and cities. They were experiencing, as we will come to see in the weeks ahead, they were experiencing pressures to quit foolishly obeying Jesus. Don't you know that's just stupid? You'll lose your job. You may lose your family. That's stupid. You might get arrested. So that's why Peter ends his letter with the exhortation to stand firm. We love the true grace of God. And as we'll see here at the end of the sermon, it is the cause of much rejoicing and indeed feasting. But we also have to be clear-eyed about it. And Peter was with these churches and these Christians that he was writing to. This transformation that they experience has consequences. In fact, here, Peter identifies in this letter seven unique pressures that his original recipients faced. They faced physical and psychological pressures, social ostracism and exclusion. They faced the potential pull from their former pagan way of life. That's the dominant cultures in which they lived. They faced the pressures of a surrounding and seductive non-Christian way of thinking or philosophies. They faced the tensions and the inconsistent behaviors of others within the church. Isn't that a, isn't that a hiccup for us? 
They face spiritual doubts about the reliability of God's promises and the future. When will Jesus establish this kingdom we're a part of? And lastly, they face Satan's constant, deadly temptations and trials. After all, Peter is the one in chapter 5 who describes Satan as a roaring and roaming lion seeking to devour, seeking to devour us. So 1 Peter, I think, is a letter for us today as Christians. It is a letter for us as a church. Because of all these pressures, because all these pressures are present within our own society and within our own culture, within our own jobs and within our own families, they're present, and we know it. We feel it, we experience it to some degree or another. They're present to varying degrees and to varying intensities depending on where we work, what profession we work in, where we live, or what social circles we swim in, what social media and news we consumed or are consumed by. All of these pressures that Peter will address in this letter, we are facing and will face as a congregation. All of these pressures are increasing and will likely continue to increase in our culture. So we need to listen to and feast upon and digest God's word for us from 1 Peter so that we might stand in the true grace of God amid whatever pressures we may face in this world. This will be tough. Not only to live out 1 Peter, it will be tough to hear it. It will be tough to hear it. It will be uncomfortable for us because Peter challenges us to re-examine our acceptance of the dominant culture's norms. And to be willing to suffer. He challenges us to be willing to suffer the alienation of being a foreigner in our own culture. Where we were born. Where we were raised among our own people with our own language. To face alienation wherever and whenever our culture's values and practices conflict with those of King Jesus. And conflict with those of his coming kingdom. That's a lot. So where do we begin? Where does Peter invite us to begin? Well, Peter invites us to begin by remembering. Who are you? He starts by reminding us of our new Christian identity that we've received from God in Christ Jesus by the power of his spirit. We've already seen that in verses 1 and 2, Peter declares that we have been chosen by God. That's your identity. You are one who has been chosen by God. Like an adopted child is chosen by those parents who long to love a child. You've been set apart and sanctified by the Spirit of God for obedience to Jesus. That's your identity. And you've been sprinkled with his cleansing blood. That's your identity. But he doesn't end there. He continues in verse 3. Look at it with me. Peter says, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... We encountered that a lot in our Psalms through Lent. According to his Hesed love, he has caused us to be born again. A Christian is someone who has gone through a second birth, born this time to God. Notice what Peter doesn't say. 
He doesn't say that our identity comes from our ancestry or our heritage. As much as we may relish those things, he doesn't say our identity comes from our moral background, how good we were in the past, or our social status now. He doesn't say it comes from our wealth or our poverty. He doesn't say it comes from our power or our victimhood. Those things are not our identity. He doesn't mention our, our actual parents because God himself has become our father. And this is now our basic and core identity. You are a chosen son and daughter of God. That's who you are. This is your identity. You are chosen. You are set apart, sanctified. That means you are holy. You are cleansed. You are a child of God. You belong to God. You are loved by God. He loves you. That's who you are. That's what's true about you at the center of everything else. If you are a Christian, you are a child of God. You belong to him and he loves you. If you had a parent that loved you, that love is but a shadow of the love that God has for you. And this is true about you from day to day, week to week, year to year, and in all the different situations and circumstances you find yourself. That's the core of who you are. You need to, we need to be reminded of that over and over and over again. No matter what hat you're wearing, business leader, plumber, lawyer, doctor, teacher, counselor, student, citizen, single, married, your core identity, the source of your worth is this. You are a child of God. You belong to him. You're a part of his kingdom, his country, his culture. And he loves you. And Christ Church, that is the definition of good news. That's gospel. That's the true grace of God. But listen here, Christ Church, it gets better. It gets better. As God's children by the second birth, as we see in verses 3 and 5, we receive what? A living hope. Not a dead one. Not a wishful hope or wishful thinking. We receive one that's active and alive. And we receive also an incorruptible inheritance. The living hope we receive is the new life of God's kingdom that is guaranteed for us because God raised Jesus from the dead. Do you realize when God raised Jesus from the dead, he opened the door to his new creation? And by his spirit, so when Jesus is, is, is raised from the dead, 40 days later, we're coming to it, when he ascends to the right hand of God, he goes to the control center of all the universe and then from that place, Jesus' resurrected body, a piece of this fallen creation made new, is now in heaven on the throne of God. And Jesus, as the king of heaven, sends his spirit, a part of that heavenly kingdom. He sends it to earth to indwell us and to empower us to live out these new lives as God's children. That's good news. That's good news. We have a living hope. Because Jesus is alive from the dead. 
We have access now by the indwelling Spirit of God to this new creation life. This new creation life which we are called to live out in obedience to the King, to the risen King, as we wait to receive our full inheritance that is being, as Peter reminds us, kept safe for us until the time when Jesus returns and it is revealed in its fullness. So what is this incorruptible inheritance that we are all heirs to? It is the fullness of salvation. Meaning that it is not only the salvation transformation of our own lives, but of this entire creation. We stand to inherit, as God's children, the entire new creation. Let that just sink in for a moment. If you believe this, let that sink in. That's amazing. We stand, like Adam and Eve in the garden, to inherit all of creation. And we know that it's going to happen because it's been guaranteed by the resurrection. We stand to inherit this entire world made new. Our cities renewed under the wise and loving reign of King Jesus. Our vocations renewed under the apprenticeship to the Holy Spirit. Our families and relationships renewed within and under the loving care of God. Christ Church, this is our identity. We are children of God. This is our hope. New life in Christ. This is our inheritance. The world made new by the resurrection power of God. So what does our identity and the hope and inheritance that come from it produce in our lives? And we'll unpack this throughout our series. Verse 1, it produces obedience to Jesus. Obedience to the king, faithfulness, loyalty to King Jesus. We're a part of his kingdom now. Verse 6, as a result of obeying Jesus, we will face suffering in this old world that is passing away, that is awaiting to be renewed one day. But it's only for a short while. It has an end. But in the midst of all that, verse 6 as well, the very beginning of it, and in the face of all that we encounter in life as we seek to obey King Jesus, whether it's suffering or ease, we rejoice. We feast. We feast. We feast remembering who we are. We are God's children. We feast because we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's reason to break out a bottle of wine. We feast because we will inherit the world made new. That's why we rejoice, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of ease, because those things are true. So this Easter season, feast. But don't feast aimlessly, for that leads to gluttony. But feast with joyful purpose. Focus on the true grace of God and allow your feasting to strengthen your resolve to stand firm in God's grace. Let this beginning, I'm about to read here, of a liturgy for feasting with friends from the book called Every Moment Holy, let this be a guide and a guardrail for you this Easter season. Let it focus your feasting. Just listen to these words. This is how it begins. To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. In celebrating this feast... We declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship 
and the welcome and comfort of friends new and old and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal and are the first fruits of that, glad, that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. So, set, so let our feast this day be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of his eternal kingdom. May this shared meal and our pleasure in it bear witness against the artifice and deceptions of the prince of the darkness that would blind this world to hope. May it strike at the root of the lie that would drain life of meaning and the world of joy and suffering of redemption. May this our feast fall like a great hammer blow against that brittle night, shattering the gloom, reawakening our hearts, stirring our imaginations, focusing our vision on the kingdom of heaven that is to come, on the kingdom that is promised, on the kingdom that is already indeed among us. For the resurrection of all good things has already joyfully begun. Let that focus your feasting and let that strengthen your resolve to stand firm this Easter season for this day and for the days to come in our lives and in the lives of our children. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen.